Your citizenship is in heaven. We've just heard it read. And it's a bold statement. It's a bold statement if you're a patriotic Australian this morning, cheering on the victory of the Socceroos last night. It's a bold statement to make. It's a bold statement to make in our modern world, the world of a city-state, the world where we issue passports and privileges. And it was a bold statement not just for... It's a bold statement for us, but it was also a bold statement in the ancient world. And so I'm glad that I'm not making it, but the Apostle Paul is. Your citizenship is in heaven. The word that Paul uses for citizenship there is a particular word, and it has reference to the political sphere. The word has a connotation of action or activity of a political entity. And that's important. It's not just technical, it is technical, but it's important. Because it reminds us about the nature of the gospel that we believe. It reminds us that the gospel that was proclaimed, the gospel that indeed we proclaimed, is a gospel about a kingdom. A kingdom and a king. A sphere. A reign. A rule with people. And a realm. John the Baptist knew this when he was preparing for Jesus to come. He started his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When Jesus himself came, he said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he said he must go on from healing to preach about the good news of the kingdom. And so it reminds us that the gospel, the good news, is not merely a private, spiritual thing between you and God. The gospel we we proclaim is about the kingdom. It's about the rule of the king over a people and with a people and for a people. It's the good news about a king and his kingdom, the reign of God coming into this world. And as the reign of God comes into this world, God will make things right. And this kingdom that we believe in, this kingdom that we speak of, is not just a future reality. But it's a present reality. It was started by Jesus' ministry. It was inaugurated by Jesus' ministry when he came to us 2,000 years ago. And it will finish. It will culminate when he returns. This present reality, though unseen, though this kingdom is unseen, is for believers. As one commentator says, he says, a present, this kingdom is a present reality which determines our ongoing existence as we live in the world. So if that's true, the fact that we believe in a king is bringing in a kingdom. This kingdom has started to be brought in, and one day will finally and fully be brought in. How does that change us? What, what difference does it make? We're going to have a look at this in three ways this morning. Firstly, we're going to see that we have heavenly citizenship. And that means... We have a distinct identity. Secondly, because we have heavenly citizenship, we're going to see that we have a distinct pattern of life. And thirdly, we're going to see that because we have heavenly citizenship, we have a distinct hope for the future. So firstly, we're going to look at heavenly citizenship and how it gives us as Christians a distinct identity. If you've got a Bible, um, you might want to have a look there in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, because there in verse 20, 
Paul, as he speaks about our citizenship being in heaven, is drawing contrast. But, he says, but your citizenship is in heaven. What's he contrasting it to? Well, the background here is that Paul is writing to a Roman colony, to Philippi. Because Philippi is this, this outcrop of Rome. And as a Roman colony, their names of those who lived would have been written in the books in Rome. They would have been registered in the city of Rome as, citizen, as, um, as occupants of Philippi. Now, not every city in the empire was a city of Rome, but Philippi was. And Philippi was considered this outpost. A little like, uh, I don't know if we've got people from Melbourne, but it was said of uh, you know, Melbourne 100 years ago that it was more English than the English. Um, you know, the English had moved on, but those in Melbourne had kept the traditions and the ways of England such that they were more English than the English. Well, this is the nature of the city of Rome, is you would have walked down the streets and the paths of that city. You would have seen the architecture of Rome. You would have tasted the food of Rome. You would have heard the language and the music of Rome. This was a, a proud Roman city. And so accordingly, its inhabitants had Roman citizenship with all the privileges that that entailed, and particularly safety. Particularly the safety of the military empire of the city of Rome. And they also owed their allegiance to this far-off capital. So when Paul says that your citizenship is in heaven... It's a bold statement that he's making. We know from inscriptions uh, in the ancient world that the Philippians took great pride in their citizenship. Paul says here, your citizenship is in heaven. Notice that he doesn't say your citizenship is also in heaven. It's not dual citizenship that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, but true citizenship. Ultimate an ultimate citizenship that overshadows, overwhelms, and recasts Roman citizenship. And that is true for us as Christians, and we see this in the New Testament. We see throughout the New Testament that we as Christian people aren't home here. We're aliens, exiles, strangers. We're those who have no abiding city and looking for a better city whose builder and founder is God. And that means that we, well, it means that we sit loose with the places and the situations that we work and live in. There's a sense in which we're always the outsider. I know some of us weren't born in Australia. And coming to a country like Australia, perhaps as a young kid, perhaps as an adult, no doubt there's always that sense of not feeling quite like you fit in. I've lived overseas for a year, and, and as, as friendly as people are, and as much as they welcome you, you you're always present. You always you always um, it's always present with you that you don't quite fit in. This isn't quite home. And that feeling that many of us might have, either coming to Australia when we've lived overseas, I think that captures something of what the Apostle Paul is speaking. Of here. He's reminding these Christians that they don't quite fit. 
with all the privilege of Roman citizenship, with all of its blessing, it's not home for them. And so it reminds us that we ought to be careful about how we view our relationship with our nation. Because what we do here, as, as we speak of the Lord Jesus, we speak of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of not just this group of people or this city or this country or this world. We speak of the Lord Jesus as the Lord of the cosmos, of everything that's ever existed and will exist. And so he is Lord above just our nation, as good as it is. What we do here, what we hear about, what we speak about actually lifts us beyond national borders. We lift it as we come together as the people of God into the throne room, the heavenly Jerusalem, where his rule is transnational, transcultural. And so, friends, in, in many ways, if you feel like you don't quite belong in Australia for various reasons, well, you're right. You don't belong, and it's not cultural. If you're a Christian, you don't belong because your citizenship is in heaven. You have another home, a final home, a real home. Paul has been speaking about citizenship. If you flick back, he's been speaking about citizenship back since chapter 1, verse 27. And there's this concept that we as citizens are ambassadors of this home of our final home, because what does a good ambassador do? A good ambassador represents the values and interests of their home to another country. And so, as much as we're reminded that we, we don't quite fit here, we're also reminded that we represent another world to this world for which we don't quite fit. We're ambassadors, because we're citizens, ultimately, not of Australia, but of heaven. And that means that we represent different values. Many Australians have had noble and good ideas. Good ideas for what, what it is to live. What lifestyle is good and what is right. But here we're reminded that we are to represent the values of heaven. Not fundamentally of Australia. We're to pursue not firstly Australian dreams but the dreams and visions of the prophets, of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel and John. These are the dreams that we're to pursue. These are the dreams and values that we're to embody. Now, as Christian people, we're thankful for a government and we seek the good of this country. But we seek its good not from this country, but from another country, from another place. We're part of this country and we should be proud for all its good but we're not consumed by it and that means to some degree we can have a distance from what happens in our country and by having a distance we can actually bring something to the table we can actually work for the welfare and the good of our nation and seek its flourishing but in order to seek its flourishing in order to seek our nation's good we need the perspective another city of heaven. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, he says, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, 
a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that, Christian, that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up in the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. So firstly, friends, we're reminded this morning that our citizenship is in heaven. That gives us a distinct identity. One that's not simply Australian. One that is in heaven for the good of our nation. Secondly, heavenly citizenship not only gives us a distinct identity, but it gives us a distinct pattern of life. And Paul here in this passage gives both a positive and a negative example. His positive example is there in verse 17. Have a look there in verse 17. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul's saying here that, look at my life. And in fact, look, look at the patheticness of my life. Here I am writing to you in chains and in prison. But he's in chains and he's in prison because he's rejected a way of living, a former way of living. His attempts are at righteousness by his own effort. He's rejected all his religious heritage and the standing that came with that in his community. All that for him is past. His past compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing the Lord Jesus. This is the great thing about being a Christian. Being a Christian calls us forward. It calls us forward to a wonderful reality. To know him more. To deepen our relationship with God as we share in the sufferings of Christ and we look forward to our resurrection. And this is the pattern of life I think that Paul is speaking of here in verses 12 to 14. He's speaking of his life. And he's calling those he writes to, not to see him as a loser in prison, but as someone to imitate. Because who is the apostle himself imitating? Well, the apostle is, in verse 17, and perhaps could be more, more correctly translated, a fellow imitator. Paul is imitating Christ, who for the joy set before him despised the shame, and endured the cross. He took on human form and became obedient. What did the Lord Jesus do? Well, he left behind all the glory and the splendour of heaven. And he came to us in human form and was willing to die for us death on a cross. He entrusted his life to his Father, even to the point of death. And Paul is saying, as I imitate Christ and what he left behind, you ought to imitate me. So that's a positive example of how heavenly citizenship gives us a distinct pattern of life. But Paul goes on there in verse 18 to give a negative example. Verse 18, for as I have often told you before now, I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Paul is saying that there are in fact many who don't live with this principle. There are many who don't take up the pattern of the Lord Jesus. They aren't dependent upon the cross. And therefore, if they're not dependent on the cross, they're not living cross-shaped lives. What are they like? What are these people like? Well, verse 19 tells us their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's not good. But who are these people? Who's Paul talking about here? Who is he reserving such drastic language for? Well, to be honest, the opinions are divided amongst the scholars and the commentators about who Paul is speaking of here. Some people think that Paul is speaking of those who are openly immoral, those who are hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, debauched people doing whatever to whoever, whenever they want. And they think that for good reason, for good reason. Uh, it sounds like that, doesn't it, with that phrase, their God is their stomach. But that's not who I think Paul is speaking of here. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul gave a warning back in chapter two, chapter 3, verse 2, when he said, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What we saw a couple of weeks ago uh, is that these people had come in after the apostle. They'd followed him and they'd created trouble for him after. They'd, they'd agitated and they'd actually undermined his message by saying, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow and take on the way of the law in all its ceremonial splendour if you want to live a rich and meaningful spiritual life. And those who imposed the law on Christian people Paul calls dogs. Those from the religious Jewish establishment are evildoers. They think that they are do-gooders, but they are in fact evildoers in Paul's mind. And the apostle in the book of Philippians really has been building an argument against these people. I think it starts back in chapter 3, verse 2, and throughout this chapter, he's building an argument against these people who have come in and are seeking to impose the law on God's people. Paul is saying here that those who have confidence in the flesh, those who back themselves for righteousness before God, well, they're who I think Paul has in mind. And Paul knows he's been down that road and he considers it rubbish compared to this passing greatness of knowing the Lord Jesus. And I think this chapter concludes with those people in mind. And so Paul is, I think, addressing not lawless Christians when he talks about those who are enemies of the cross. But he's talking, I think, about law-abiding Christians. Those who are law-enforcing enemies of the cross. So why does he use the phrase, their God is their belly? Or it could be... Uh, speaking sarcastically to referring to their food laws, but probably more likely he's speaking about their desires to be human. The way in which they're driven by human ideas and appetites. What Paul says earlier on in this chapter, that the flesh, their fleshly 
They're human and not spiritual. Because there's a failure to see how profound the death of the Lord Jesus is. They've consigned themselves to their own powers and resources, not to the ones of God. They've got their minds set on earthly things because they have not accepted what God has done in his Son and by his Spirit. In other words, they're not focused on the power, the presence and the program of God. And so what the Apostle Paul is reminding us here is that there are two ways in which we can reject God. We can reject God through lawlessness and open rebellion. Paul is also reminding us here that we can reject God through being religious, through simply thinking that law-keeping is the means which makes us righteous before God. That's why verse 18, they're enemies of the cross, because they think that they can obtain and achieve righteousness before God without going through the cross. So here's the question for us this morning. Do we live as enemies of the cross? If I'm right, I'm thinking, Paul is actually addressing people within the church of Philippi. Do we, or are we at risk of living as an enemy of the cross? Well, you know, of course not. Of course we're not, because we're Christians. But let me ask you this. Is your life focused on the power, the presence, and the program of God? Is that what you think about? Or do you compartmentalise your life? I do this. I'm very good at this. You sing quite happily on a Sunday, yet on a Monday, your heart can be far from God. Is the kingdom of God that you believe in, the kingdom of God that's preached by the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God that's breaking into our world, is it, is it breaking into your heart? Do you regularly identify your need of the cross? Or do you obscure it? The problem with these teachers is that they were obscuring it. They were obscuring it by the need, by they were obscuring the need for the cross by saying, well, if you keep the law more, you can press on and be perfect. Paul is saying here that is rubbish. You've got to know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, that means that you're constantly going back to the reality that. He has died. And he hasn't just died for us once when we became a Christian. He has died for every moment of our lives. We as Christian people need to die and be raised each day. We need to die to our old self and be raised to the new life of living like the Lord Jesus. Salvation is not primarily more rules. Salvation in the Lord Jesus is knowing that you need rescue. And we can run the danger of walking as enemies of the cross, obscuring our need for a saviour. Because we don't see how fallen we are. And do you obscure the pattern that Jesus gives us here? Do you think that you can become like Jesus without suffering with Jesus. It may, be, it may well be that this is what those 
who came in and taught after Paul were offering. They were offering an upgraded version of Christianity, all of the all of the grace without any of the suffering. Paul makes it clear here. He himself, he, he hasn't arrived there in verse 12. And so why do we think that we can grow as Christians without suffering like the Lord Jesus? Because when we suffer like the Lord Jesus, he brings life out of death. Are you surprised by suffering? Are you always caught off guard and wondering why it's you? Or do you see it as part of the road to becoming like your Saviour? There's a great irony in this passage there in verse 18 that these people who, what they glory in is in fact their shame. I think the glory that, that they relish in is that they, they don't see themselves as needy. That's what they ought to be ashamed of. They ought not to be ashamed that they need a saviour. They ought to be ashamed that they don't think that they need a saviour. That perhaps they think that Christianity is just some form of spiritual enhancement, just some form of upgrade when they're already a kind of okay life. But the Gospel of the Lord Jesus reminds us that we are spiritually bankrupt and there is no way we can pay that debt. We need rescue. We need redemption from a spiritual pit. And it could well be that these false teachers, these dogs, these enemies of the cross, want to hold on to their former lives of all they're achieved. And they don't want to throw away the, the whole work of their religious and spiritual life for Jesus. Jesus, in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, says just three words. He says, remember Lot's wife. Lot was a nephew of Abraham, and when they divided up the land, Lot and his family went to camp in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the evil of those cities had become so great and was so heinous that God came to judge those cities. And in judging those cities, we get a window into what God will do ultimately at the end. The angels were sent to the city to rescue Lot and his family, and there as a caravan, the family are taken safely out and on their way out, they are told not to look back. But Lot's wife kept holding on. Perhaps kept holding on to her past. And we are told that she turned to a pillar of salt. And so in this strange and ominous story, Jesus says these three words. Remember Lot's wife. He goes on to say, whoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. So what are you holding on to this morning? What are you clutching so tightly to offer before God, perhaps as a means of justifying yourself? Or other things in your life you're holding on to that you know are against the purposes of God and his kingdom? The Apostle Paul in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is encouraging us to let go of both. Of all of the things that we think that we are doing to merit God's forgiveness, and all the things that we are doing in rebellion, we let go of them both because their end, Apostle Paul says, is destruction. This is the pattern. This is the pattern of the Christian life suffering and then glory, death and then resurrection. 
And finally, just to close, we see here in Paul's mind that heavenly citizenship gives us hope of the future. Paul turns these Christians' attention to not what's going on around them, as serious as it is, but of their future. There's an eagerness of the future. There's not an uncertainty in Paul's mind. We're told in our world these days to focus on the now, to focus on this moment. And there's probably many things that are good about that. We as Christian people can hope in a future, can think about a future. And perhaps the reason we're told to just think about the now is because so many people are unsure of the future today. Well, not us. Not those who confess Christ there in verse 21. Because we know that there is a power at work, a power beyond us. One that will take everything in our world and will bring it out of the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus. Jesus will come again. He will come again. He will come to deliver us. He will come to set things right. He will come to free us from sin and evil, from oppression and decay. And this is what the Apostle Paul has been speaking of again and again in this letter of in Philippians 2 with that hymn about what Christ has done, about his glory. And do you know what? The wonderful thing is that just as Jesus took on our flesh and lowered himself to our reality, to the point of death, here we have the great reverse of what Paul is promising all who trust in the Lord Jesus. He, the Lord Jesus, he ascended on high. He came to us. Why? Verse 21. To bring us to where he is. He will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. The one who is immortal and eternal has taken on human flesh. And in the resurrection, he has been lifted. He has been raised. And there is the promise of our future. One day God will raise our bodies, decayed as they are, wrapped by disease as they well could be. He will raise us. And we await a king who will not only raise us, but we're reminded here he will transform us. He will transform everything about our bodies and indeed about our world. We await a king who rules over all, whose by his power he will bring everything under control. One day, Christ will exert his rule entirely. He will make the world right. He will reign. And he will bring us home to his kingdom. Amen. Please stand as we sing.